Welcome to the latest edition of the JGI Policy Pulse, brought to you by Florida International University's Gordon Institute for Public Policy at the Stephen J. Green School of International and Public Affairs. I'm your host, Leland Lazarus. In this episode, we continue to delve into the harrowing aftermath of the October 7th Hamas attack and the subsequent Israel-Hamas conflict, events that have stirred global debate and concern. With over 1,200 civilian lives lost in Israel and allegations of Hamas violating international norms, the crisis escalates by the day. Meanwhile, Israel faces international scrutiny over claims of using excessive force, with a staggering toll of approximately 18,000 Palestinian casualties, predominantly women and children, igniting debates about the principles of war and morality. Amidst this turmoil, high-ranking U.S. officials, including Vice President Kamala Harris and Secretary of State Antony Blinken, have intensified their appeals for adherence to international law and the safeguarding of innocent lives in Gaza. But what does international law really say about Hamas's brutal warfare tactics and Israel's complex military objectives? Join Dr. Shlomi Dinar, Dean of FIU's Green School of International and Public Affairs, and Dr. Mario Loyola, an assistant professor and lawyer who has worked on Middle East issues for years as they unravel these critical questions, shedding light on the legal, ethical, and humanitarian dimensions of this ongoing conflict. This podcast is being recorded on Sunday, December 10th, 2023. As the Israel-Hamas war continues into its 65th day, questions related to international law, and whether the parties to the war are either following or violating international humanitarian law or the laws of war are being raised. We are joined by Mario Loyola, who is a research assistant professor in Institute of Environment and teaches at the College of Law at FIU. Loyola has worked on environmental policy and regulatory issues for many years. He is a former associate director for regulatory reform at the White House Council on Environmental Quality, and is currently a fellow at Heritage Foundation. He has also served as policy advisor in the Pentagon and as Foreign and Defense Counsel in the United States Senate. He has written extensively about armed conflict and international law for such publications as National Review, The Atlantic, and The Wall Street Journal, in addition to academic and policy journals. His first magazine article was 20 years ago on the founding of the United Nations, and his first cover story was a year later on the death of Yasser Arafat. He received a BA in European history from the University of Wisconsin and a JD from Washington University School of Law, where he focused on international criminal law. Mario, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Dean Dinar, and happy Sunday to you. Thank you. Happy Hanukkah. <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, let me let me start with a first our first question, and I'd like to start with a more general uh, question. Can you give us a sense of how international law applies to Israel and Hamas specifically? And in the case of Israel, what laws and statutes are they signatories to? Uh, in the case of Hamas, are they covered by international law since they are technically a non-state actor or, or terrorist organization? So if you can give us that, if you will, kind of that general perspective as it relates to those questions in particular. Sure. So a couple of things. First of all, I think that this is, this is a lot like the U.S. war against Al-Qaeda, so about which a lot was written uh, on the international law 
issues. Uh, and so as such, uh, Israel's war against Hamas is a, is a conflict of a not international character. So as a non-international armed conflict, uh, it has a certain status uh, under the law of war. And, it, and, and we talk about it as a non-international conflict because on the other side, fighting from Israel, there's not a state actor. There is, as you mentioned, a non-state actor, a terrorist organization called Hamas. Um, Israel, as a state actor, is subject to international, international customary law of war. It is subject to the Geneva Conventions. It's subject to the United Nations Charter. Uh, uh, unlike uh, a lot of other countries, it has not signed the additional protocols one and two to the Geneva Convention uh, following the, United, the practice of the United States and several other uh, of the more um, active militaries in the world. Uh, it has not uh, it has not adopted the additional protocols, but it does in general abide by them, and we can talk about that uh, in a little more detail. Um, Hamas is a terrorist organization. It's a it's an officially designated terrorist organization, uh, and um, and is uh, and its fighters are therefore and its members are considered unlawful combatants as you re you may remember the bush administration describing al-qaeda fighters as unlawful combatants uh and that raises some novel detainee issues of how to treat them uh and i'll just mention we can go into this in more detail as well but i, I was at the pentagon in particular as this you know the the legal position on unlawful detainees was being developed and implemented and, you know, the challenge there for the government of the United States, and, and it's been a challenge for the government of Israel as well, is that these, you know, the, is, that, is that because they are both criminals, uh, you know, these terrorists are both criminals as a matter of the domestic civil law of states like Israel and the United States, they're murderers, they are, they are guilty of conspiracy, they're guilty of, uh, of torture, of uh, kidnapping. Uh, and that's all that all can be charged as criminal law domestically, but they are also combatants. And here, here's a key thing to understand that the law of war respecting soldiers and the, and armed conflict and soldiers in armed conflict and soldiers that are captured on the battlefield gives soldiers a different set of, yeah, a set of protections. And then being a defendant in a civil criminal proceeding gives you a certain set of protections. And if you can figure out how to, if you're a terrorist and you, and I'm your lawyer, I would advise you to try to figure out how to accumulate, how to, how to claim that you are a member of both categories so that you can accumulate the protections of both categories and wind up in a better position than if you were just a soldier or just a, a defendant in a murder trial. And from our point of view, that is a really unaccept, that was a really unacceptable result. Uh, because it would, in effect, reward terrorists who are uh, criminals that are able to commit strategic acts against states uh, by leaving them in a better position than if they were just soldiers uh, on uh, in a regular military. Uh, and so that that says, you know, that's the status of Hamas fighters within the Geneva Conventions. Uh, Hamas is also subject to international criminal law. It's subject to uh, to uh, the, uh, it is subject to the you know war crimes. It is subject to uh, uh, crimes against you know the prohibitions on crimes against humanity, prohibitions on genocide, uh, 
Uh, and, uh, and that's an important thing to consider because if you read down the definition of crimes against humanity, according to the United Nations Convention, you will realize right away that Hamas is not just guilty of crimes against humanity. It has committed literally every single crime that is listed uh, in, the, in the Convention on Crimes Against Humanity. And in fact, on October 7th, it committed all of them in one day. And, and that's what I'd like to, that, that was actually my next question for you, is what does international law in particular say about uh, the October 7th massacre that Hamas perpetrated? How does that, how does, what is interna how does international law help us understand this particular massacre in terms of uh, what, Hamas, what Hamas is guilty of? How would international, how does international law treat this particular massacre? So I will say uh, we heard, I think you may have heard that Nihad Awad uh, of the executive director of the Council on American Islamic Relations got himself into some trouble the other day by saying that he was, you know, felt really uplifted and excited when uh, when uh, Palestinians were able to cross the the uh, the gates and and step on on Israeli territory, which uh, Hamas considers to be, you know, uh, Hamas considers all of Israel to be uh, Palestinian territory. Uh, and he got himself into a, a lot of trouble for what was essentially a pro-Hamas uh, speech. Uh, but that speech contained another important element that didn't draw as much attention, which is that he said that as a as a as a as a, as a uh, you know as an armed group that's resisting occupation, uh, they had you know they had Hamas had every right to cross the international uh, border, cross the border into into uh, Israel, and that as an occupying power. Uh, Israel does not have any right of self-defense, and I and under international law, this is exactly the this 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 is exactly the opposite of what international law describes, uh, because uh, Hamas does not Hamas as an unlawful combatant uh, does not have a right to wage war of an international character is not recognized as waging war of an international character. And you cannot say that, that Hamas has the right to resist an occupation that Hamas may, has made necessary by starting a war. Uh, and starting a war, which it did, and starting a war that was an act of aggression and, uh, and violated uh, international humanitarian law uh, and, and you know, checked every single box under, uh, under crimes against humanity that you could check. Uh, and so these were uh, violations of the domestic law of any country that would have jurisdiction to try them. And of course, it's a violation of, of international law. They attacked civilians. They targeted civilians. Uh, they targeted civilians for rape, for murder, for torture, for kidnapping uh, and really heinous acts that are uh, that that, you know, the, the, the Israeli army has collected. The IDF has collected videos that the Palestinians shot themselves, that the Hamas fighters shot themselves of the of the attack on these kibbutzim that in some cases have existed since before the state of Israel even existed. Uh, and starting in 2007, I was convinced that Israel could not afford to tolerate the existence of Hamas. Uh, and sh sure enough, as we discovered on October 7th, now most Israelis uh, agree with that. Uh, and so uh, between just the, even before October 7th, now it's obvious after the attacks of October 7th, that Israel has every right to define a war aim as uh, the eradication and destruction of Hamas. And I have insisted, um, and we can talk about this more also, you know, international law uh, uh, prohibits a policy of no quarter. 
right? Uh, if people give themselves up as, as prisoners, you have to detain them and take care of them. And that brings up the question of, will Hamas ever surrender? And when, can, how far should Israel go in this war? Uh, and I think we can get to we can get to what are appropriate surrender terms there, but definitely uh, under international law, Israel has the right to continue to prosecute this war until the final eradication of Hamas. Yeah, and and you, we're obviously now talking about the actual war, right, going beyond the, the October seventh massacre. Um, and I, I want to ask you another one more question about Hamas before we, of course, turn to to Israel as well. And so as we, as we consider the, the actual war that's taking place now, what does international law say about Hamas's fighting tactics? And what are the various perspectives, opinions, if you will, in international law about, about, about such tactics and how Hamas is, is waging this particular, uh, engaging in this particular war? So I think this is a very important, I think it's very important to understand that the propaganda element in Hamas's overall strategy for defeating Israel is not merely incidental, it is central. Uh, and that the main assets that Hamas uses uh, in this propaganda strategy, which is to suppress the Israeli response, right? I mean, Hamas wants to carry out this, what it considers to be a heroic massacre of Israeli civilians, as a heroic act of resistance, uh, and, uh, and it will only work if it can suppress the Israeli response. And it doesn't have a, it doesn't have a tactical military strategy for suppressing the Israeli response. It has a prop, a strategic propaganda strategy for a strategic level propaganda strategy in military terms for suppressing the Israeli response that depends on lots of Palestinian civilians getting killed. And so, you know, that's, a, that's an important point when you're looking at all this destruction uh, that Hamas has made necessary in Gaza, just remember that Hamas knew exactly what Israel was going to have to do after October 7th. So Hamas knew all of this was going to happen, uh, and it still thought that it was worth killing 1,200 Jews uh, and taking 200 more and taking hundreds of hostages, and it still thinks that that was worth it. Its leadership is still saying that it would do, you know, Hamas's, uh, Hamas's greatest crimes in some ways have been committed against its own people. Right? They steal the humanitarian assistance that's going to them. They steal it from them at, at gunpoint. Uh, they, uh, they, they emplace their missile batteries, which they launch at indiscriminately at Israeli civilians. I mean, the one who is using indiscriminate force against civilians and, and thereby committing another war crime is Hamas. Right? Because they shoot missiles you know, all year round. They've done it for 20 years, not just since the start of, of October of, uh, of, the, of the war on October 7th. Uh, and they put these missile batteries inside of United Nations compounds. They put them inside schools. They they hide the missiles under mosques. They use they use the hospitals as uh, centers for to store all of these weapons. Uh, and uh, and if you if, if no more proof, you need no more proof than to see that if they were really worried about the hospitals, they would declare the hospitals open and invite the IDF to enter the hospitals and administer them in such a way that nobody gets killed and that those hospitals get everything they need. But, but uh, Hamas considers the hospital to be a ground of resistance, and that is another war crime. It is very important to understand that the fact that Israel has to fight in hospitals and has to target military hospitals is because Hamas has turned those uh, schools and hospitals and mosques into military targets. 
and that Hamas has done that on purpose. And the reason why Hamas has done that on purpose is in order to maximize Palestinian civilian casualties. And the reason why it wants to maximize Palestinian civilian casualties is because of the, you know, I call them willing dupes in the West who see that and out of humanitarianism are concerned that civilians are needlessly dying and then they start calling for a ceasefire. And that's the real purpose is to use the corpses of Palestinian civilians and the badly injured and, Palest and Palestinian children killed as a way to put pressure on Israel to restrain, be restrained in its response uh, beyond what the law of war would require. Uh, and so, um, does that answer the question? Yeah, no, absolutely. And actually, that this relates to to my next question to you now. As we as I as we turn more to Israel, uh, as as we look at international law, um, you know, what does international law say about Israel's perhaps fighting tactics? And I think um, we've all seen this kind of broad or heard uh, uh, a broad perception and argument that Israel is using disproportionate force in Gaza. Uh, Bernie Sanders, I think, uh, in particular, has, has mentioned this and, and arguing this um, as uh, he was arguing uh, against an aid package, a recent aid package to Israel, making that argument as well, or at least being that, that being part of his argument. So, um, so I guess a follow-up question to that, right, in addition to looking at Israel in the context of international law and the war and, and its tactics, uh, doesn't international law make it illegal to use disproportionate, disproportionate force? So I think it's very important. First of all, let me make a general statement about the evolution of international law since World War II and particularly since the Vietnam War. There have been a lot of efforts to make is, uh, international law more humanitarian and more protective of civilians since then uh, and more restraining on all governments both democratic governments and uh, and uh, and dictatorships and uh, tyrannies of various kinds, um, but a lot of these uh, a lot of these efforts have been very deeply misguided. And you can tell the canary in the coal mine is just ask yourself if the rule that you're talking about. Let's take as an example the supposed rule that you can only use self defense if an attack is imminent against you that you can only use preemptive self-defense if an attack is imminent against you. Let's apply that these rules that we're talking about to the 1930s Europe and ask ourselves if they would have made life easier or harder for Nazi Germany. And you will see that the rule, for example, that you can only preempt an imminent attack, this basically protects Germany until it's ready to conquer Europe, right? And I mean, there's no rational person could look at the period 1936 to 1939 and conclude that we have to restrain the ability of England and France to act preemptively against the looming Nazi threat. Okay. So now this is just a general, uh, a general um, word about that's not really relevant specifically to the question that you asked me, because even with the increasingly increasing restraints and humanitarian approaches of international law, um, uh, international law is very clear that in self-defense, the force that is that is justified is that force that is necessary, and uh, and and basically what it amounts to, right, is the, the principle of necessity is the key. That's basically what it says. And then there's a there's a principle of proportionality that says, okay, do what you got to do, but don't do more than what you got to do, because if civilians get killed un unnecessarily, we're gonna we're gonna say that that's not that's not allowed under international law. 
And, and so the key thing here, and you can see this really clearly if you look at, uh, at the language of the additional protocol to the Geneva Conventions, is that the principle of proportionality says that you cannot use, if, if you have to attack a target that would entail civilian loss of life in that military operation, you cannot use more force than is proportional to the military advantage to be gained. Right. So the principle of proportionality doesn't have anything to do with how much force the enemy has used against you. Everyone thinks that that's what it means. Sometimes even the secretary general of the United Nations seems to think that that's what it means. That's not what it means. The language is very clear. The principle of proportionality applies to the mil to the to the military advantage to be gained from that military operation. And so if you say, OK, so the, mil the military advantage. We, so what, what does that mean? That means that we're not going to use a you know, 15,000 pound daisy cutter, uh, uh, that the U S that the U S army you last used, I think in, in the, in the Persian Gulf war, um, we're not going to use this, you know, significant fraction of a nuclear level explosion, uh, where a 500 pound warhead will do. Okay. That's a, that's a very simple uh, thing. And you can't tell that from looking at pictures of buildings that have been brought down. Because if Hamas is fighting from buildings and IDF is taking fire from those buildings, and they've given all the warnings they could for civilians to get out of those buildings, uh, that building is going to be a military target. It's going to be treated under international law as a military target. And if it's necessary to bring that building down with an airstrike, then that is what is going to be allowed under international law. Uh, and so that's very important to understand because you know, Hamas doesn't have any lawyers that go into battle with it to tell it what it can and can't strike. But the Israeli army does go into battle with lawyers. And it goes into battle with, with military lawyers every step of the way, uh, trying to calibrate the response and trying to calibrate every uh, military action and every tactical action so that it's not exposing civilians to more harm than is necessary to accomplish that military objective. And so we see, and I've noticed, and I've gotten even into arguments with uh, with with a very senior uh, uh, counsel, former counsel for the IDF, who says that the Israeli military is even more moral and and observes even more restraints than the U.S. military does, and uh, and I think that um, that it doesn't have to observe those restraints and should not, uh, because they, at the end of the day, uh, create incentives. For uh, for you know the the create incentives for Hamas to use its own civilians as human shields, and this is something very important. I mean, Hamas does not just use the idealistic humanitarianism of these students on university campuses saying "Free Free Palestine." It doesn't only manipulate their sense of justice; it also very much manipulates Israel's sense of humanism. And one of its goals, actually is to get the Israelis, it tries as hard as it can to get the Israelis to respond in a barbaric way so that they can dehumanize the Israelis and make them more like Hamas. Uh, and that is something that, you know, you, ha you have to really admire uh, the bravery and the humanism of, uh, of, of Israelis who, uh, and it doesn't, you know, I understand that people say, well, 12,000 civilians have just died. How humane is the IDF? You know, I promise you, if you understand this conflict properly and you understand Hamas's strategy properly, that twelve thousand is the is the is the is the number that Hamas has put on uh, uh, out there to be to be slaughtered on purpose and has given uh, Israel no choice but to fight in and around those civilians. Yeah.
you mentioned uh, earlier uh, the United Nations, and, and as we know, um, there has been a, a broad popular support for an immediate ceasefire. And again, most recently, the UN Security Council uh, proposed a ceasefire resolution that was vetoed by the United States. I'm curious to know uh, what guidance, if any, does international law provide regarding ceasefires in times of war, and particularly this war that we're talking about uh, today? And then I would, I would really, I would want to hear your thoughts uh, about a ceasefire. Do you think a ceasefire is a good idea at this time? Let, let me start by answering your last question first. So, um, you know, at the Battle of uh, Fort Donelson, uh, the in the civil in the American Civil War, the Confederate general at one point asked for, uh, said, you know, raise the white flag and said, you know, we're we're going to surrender. What are the terms? And the terms are, you know, he wants to be able to walk out with his soldiers, want to be able to walk out with rent insignia and maybe go back to uh, Confederate lines or, you know, uh, be able to keep their weapons. And uh, and General Ulysses S. Grant's answer was uh, an immediate and unconditional surrender are the only terms that can be accepted. And here was born the concept of unconditional surrender. Actually, they used to call Grant unconditional surrender Grant. Uh, during the Civil War. Uh, and this was a concept that we found it necessary to revive at the very beginning of World War II, uh, when, uh, when the Allies agreed not to seek a separate peace uh, with the Axis powers, and they agreed to continue fighting until the unconditional surrender of the Axis powers. And as we know, if, if, if you have, if the war aim, if the, if it's a legitimate war aim to eradicate Hamas, just like it was a legitimate war aim to eradicate Nazism, uh, then that implies that the only acceptable ceasefire terms are unconditional, an immediate and unconditional surrender, right? That those are the only terms that Israel needs to accept. Those are the only terms that Israel should accept. Uh, because otherwise what happens if you get a partial ceasefire, that's not an immediate and unconditional surrender is that the conflict is going to continue because that means what that means is that Hamas lives to fight another day. And uh, we've been through this argument many times before. And the reason why the Security Council matters here, uh, and, and first of all, I'll say so in response to one of the questions you asked there, what does international law say about ceasefires and when, when uh, a ceasefire has to be agreed? Um, the, the specific doctrine of the United States against, you know, the United States had to define, you know, some conditions under which its war against Al-Qaeda would end because otherwise they were, you know, it's a forever war. And the conditions that were expressed by the Obama administration and uh, in mature form and embraced essentially by every other administration uh, since the attacks of 9-11 is, uh, is that the conflict will end when we have achieved the e effective destruction. This was the precise words used by the Obama administration, the effective destruction of al-Qaeda. And, and I think that the idea that the Israeli army has tracked very closely to that. And, you know, you say, well, Hamas is, you know, al-Qaeda, they just aren't the surrendering type. But that's that's immaterial because... What we have to think about is that is that um, is that international law prohibits a policy of no quarter, which means that if the U.S. were to say we're not taking any prisoners, we're just going to kill everyone in Al Qaeda, that would be a war crime on the part of the United States. So the United States, even if it's seeking the effective destruction of Al Qaeda, it still has to take prisoners if the prisoners give themselves up. 
right? It has to take them as detainees and it has to take care of them. And what it doesn't have to do is allow Hamas to continue existing, right? Or allow Al-Qaeda to continue existing. It doesn't have to do that. Uh, and so what are the ceasefire terms? So, 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 um, so international law requires that Israel be amenable to a ceasefire and be, a, 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 and accept a ceasefire. Uh, but the only conditions under which Israel is required by international law to accept a ceasefire is the immediate and unconditional surrender of Hamas or the immediate and unconditional surrender of the combatants. Like we saw the other day, pictures of men stripped down to their underwear, uh, or, or, right. And which was necessary, of course, again, not because Hamas wants to humiliate them, but because any of these, these are the world's most prolific suicide bombers and they know how to hide a suicide belt under a t-shirt. And so when you take when you take prisoners, you have to make them take off their T-shirts, right? This is not because Israel wants to do that. When we took, you know, Nazis prisoners in World War II, we didn't make them take off their uh, T-shirts because we didn't have to worry about them hiding, you know, bomb belts. Uh, and so again, these are things that Hamas makes necessary. Um, and um, and so uh, and so the United Nations angle matters here, as I mentioned, uh, it, it, because. The way that this this is now like almost a diplomatic ritual, which is, and it goes back to the era of state-on-state -state Arab-Israeli wars, which is that the Arabs start, you know, Egypt or, or, or Jordan or whoever starts a war with Israel, and immediately there's crisis diplomacy in the Security Council and a vote on a ceasefire resolution. And because the, the, and the ceasefire resolution is under Chapter 7, which is mandatory. On, on members of the United Nations, which does not include Hamas, but includes Israel, right? In the case of, you know, the Yom Kippur War or the Six-Day War, it obviously included the other combatants there, which are Egypt, Jordan, Syria. Uh, and, uh, and so what, and, and so as soon as you take the best example, which you could teach a class about, is that when in the Yom Kippur War, the Soviets were present immediately with a ceasefire resolution that would have been as soon as, not immediately, I should say, as soon as Israel counterattacked and had crossed back across the Suez River and pierced the center of, of the front uh, and was encircling the Egyptian Third Army, all of a sudden the Soviets were there with a ceasefire resolution. And there's a very, there's a very funny and enlightening uh, description of this in, in Kissinger's memoirs, by the way, because Kissinger at this point was the... Um, was the both Secretary of State and National Security Advisor and was leading the negotiations with the Soviets. Uh, he actually flew to Moscow to negotiate the terms of the ceasefire with the Soviets uh, because the 12 hours that he would be in transit would waste more time and give Israel more time to encircle uh, the Egyptian Third Army. Uh, anyway, when they finally agreed on the terms of the ceasefire, and what ends up happening in this situation is that everybody's happy to, everybody on the Security Council is happy to impose uh, a ceasefire on Israel, and the U.S. is the one that's threatening to veto the resolution until Israel has had enough time. The 1973 war, by the way, is a great example. Bernie Sanders, you mentioned earlier, was saying that we have to impose conditions on the aid that we gave to Israel. This is not unprecedented, and it's not always bad. Uh, uh, I, uh, What happened in the Yom Kippur War is that as Israel was about to finish encircling the Egyptian Third Army and destroy it, essentially, uh, is that the Nixon administration, Kissinger in particular, uh, was, was of the strong opinion that Sadat should not be humiliated and that there, that there, in that case, because 
Israel and Egypt had to learn to peacefully coexist. It was a good idea to have a negotiated settlement, and Kissinger felt strongly that a negotiated compromise ceasefire would be the best foundation for peace. And he was right, because Jimmy Carter got to sign on the dotted line, essentially, of the Camp David Accords, which is the agreement between Egypt and the peace agreement between Egypt and Israel that Kissinger essentially made possible by restraining Israel at the last moment and keeping it from destroying the Egyptian Third Army completely. Uh, so I'm not against, you know, I'm not against the principle uh, of conditioning aid to Israel, and I would say there's even a case to be made that that uh, aid for the on the same, but for the same reason, because Ukraine and Russia have to figure out how to coexist peacefully, that there may be some uh, appropriate conditions on U.S. aid to Ukraine uh, to to help uh, foment uh, peace peace talks there and the settlement there. I think that it should be obvious as a strategic matter that a peaceful coexistence with Hamas was never possible after the. Uh, it was never possible, period, because Hamas has always been dedicated to the destruction of Israel. And remember, you know, these these what Hamas means when it talks about occupation is the existence of the state of Israel on any inch of Arab land anywhere. Uh, and that's why when Hamas talks about uh, from the river to the sea, what they really mean uh, is to is to is to use the German term Judenheim. Uh, is to make Palestine free of Jews. That's really what Hamas wants. Uh, <coughs> um, and so for all of these reasons, uh, I think it is very important for the, the Israel not to accept a ceasefire, except on the terms of unconditional surrender, and for the U.S. not to put any pressure on Israel to accept a, such a ceasefire. And in, as a matter of fact, when I was at the, I can tell you that when I was at the White House, uh, in an environmental role back in 2017, 2018, 2019, I remember having discussions with my colleagues down the hall on the National Security Council staff, where, in which I was trying to tell them that the U.S. should consider seriously embracing a declaratory policy that in any war started by Hamas or, or Hezbollah, uh, the U.S. will guarantee that Israel will have all the time, resources, and diplomatic cover that it needs to uh, to to secure a complete victory over the enemy in that situation, because otherwise, um, uh, it seemed to me that the, you know, the attempt to tolerate the existence of Hamas and the attempt to tolerate the constant rocket fire, just because, uh, you know, it, it, uh, Iron Dome uh, makes, uh, the Iron Dome missile defense system makes Palestinian rocket fire less effective than it would be otherwise, uh, it didn't seem to me that there were the seeds of peaceful coexistence anywhere here and that, and that, uh, and that it was very dangerous to, uh, and it was very dangerous to, in, to entertain the delusion that peaceful coexistence might be possible one day. Uh, yeah, and let me actually use this opportunity to go to our, our last question. And, and you're, you were actually referring to, uh, to the phrase, right? There is now a lot of controversy uh, around the expression from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Uh, uh, I know that Representative uh, Rashida Tlaib, for example, says that this is an aspirational call for freedom, human rights, and peaceful coexistence, not death, destruction, or hate. But of course, we also know that there is a, another perspective to this particular statement. Uh, Israelis and others have condemned the use of the phrase is anti-Semitic and even genocidal. Um, and uh, in a way, you've kind of, I think, uh, answered this question, but let's, let's focus on the phrase nonetheless. If you could just tell us, tell our audience, why is this phrase so charged? Uh, and again, can we connect this? Is there an international law 
connection uh, as well. And, and we'll end with we'll end with this particular question. Well, that's a, it's a great question, uh, Dean Dinar. And you know, I'll say that this is there. There's nothing funny about the Gaza war, and it's a very somber. Uh, it's a very somber and serious um, uh, uh, and terrible, terrible. You know, events and every day that it goes on, you know, you you weep for the people on the Palestinian side who are being put at danger by their own leadership. Um, uh, what that means is that this pal- there's no room in this Palestinian state for any Jewish state. That's what it means. And so, uh, and and I would say that uh, from the and and this is why, even though the you know it sounds so beautiful to say from the river to the sea, of course that's from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean. Um, uh, the, even though it sounds so beautiful, the reason why people take this as genocide is because part of the definition of genocide is when you are seeking the elimination of a national group, and Israel is a national group. Israel is a nation state that's recognized recognized law abiding member of the United Nations. Uh, and Israelis are a national group, and uh, and their elimination is being sought, and that's and that's why the phrase uh, should be. That's why the phrase is thought by many people to constitute uh, a call for genocide and should be treated uh, as such. Thank you so much, uh, Mario Loyola. This has really been an engaging conversation. I think very also educational on a topic that many are asking questions about. Uh, and I think we've shed light, you've shed light on, on much of this. So thank you so much for, for joining us for this podcast. Thank you, Dean Dinar.